Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the show this week by our chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. Sean, you and I did an episode some time ago now, it's probably a couple of years ago maybe, in the podcast on the childhood origins of your thinking and behavior. Yeah. Um, that was kind of aimed, I guess, at adults, you know, so how we learn to think and behave in certain ways to experience in our lifetime. And that kind of explains maybe why we have certain tendencies today in our thinking and behavior. But I get a lot of questions, Sean from parents who have kids and they're like, well, I'm raising them today, so what should I be doing? You know, like I don't want to like bring up kids who, you know, reinforcing avoidance styles or whatever. So what should I do? And I thought one particularly to focus on would be achievement. So how do we instill achievement thinking, achievement behavior into our kids growing up? Does that sound for a meaty topic to get into? It is a meaty topic and, of course, We've all got to be careful not to be perfectionistic about our parenting. That, you know, we will True. screw up. Is the, the famous uh, what's his first name? Larkin. Palm goes. Our parents they do fuck us up. Yes. A very famous English. They had a couple first. ones just for you or something, isn't it? Yeah, because they were done right. too, or saying their parents did it yep. too. Exactly. So I mean, it's one of the few things that we do without an instructor's manual. Bloody true, Sean. Of the most complicated thing in the world, no one really. Exactly. Sets you up. I remember when we had our kids, we were prepared for like the the labor and stuff like that. And then we kind of realized day two, (laughs) you know, or day one plus one hour, here's a baby. It's like, oh God, what do we do? (laughs) I don't know. No one prepares you. Yep. Well, I mean, for one of a blanket statement, and it's going to be an obvious one, but uh, I can't remember if it's John Lennon or the Beatles band that was the song, All You Need Is Love. And so that's a good place to start with is that is the single most important thing in bringing any child up in a constructive manner to think constructively about themselves. And that is the notion of unconditional positive regard, as uh, Carl Rogers talked about it in his writings about what we call humanistic encouraging in the circumplex. It's this notion of unconditional positive regard. So there's no condition upon. So, I mean, I used to do social research years ago allied to this work and you'd walk around shopping malls which is an absolute hotbed of psychology and sociology <laughs> and you'd listen to parents sort of say you know mummy won't love you if you don't get uh, back in and all these kinds of things or you've got a kid that is not getting unconditional positive regard that child is getting conditional positive regard and therefore by definition will probably not have very strong constructive self-concept and will therefore rely on security-seeking behaviours as they grow into adulthood. Right. I'm only loved if I'm a good boy, e- good girl e- kind e- of stuff. Exactly. And it's really hard. I mean, the problem is the textbooks all assume that uh, you have boundless energy as a parent, that you have nothing else to focus on other than your children, that you have no financial concerns about the $2 million bloody mortgage you've just taken on or something like that. And you're tired, you're grumpy, all you want to do is just sit down quietly and put your feet up. You got woken up on the hour every hour through the night by at least one of your three children, if not all three at the same time kind of thing. <laughs> and hey, I'm expected to be unconditional, positive, freaking regard with this kid. But that, that is That's unfortunately the assignment. A, a bottom line. As I probably use the expression 
We've been talking about some of the child growth through to development under the origins of the circumplex from a growth point of view. Is it, you know, like you have an argument with your 14-year-old daughter and she screams at you, I didn't ask to be born. Actually, she's quite right. She didn't ask to be born. This was something that you decided <laughs> to do. And so you have to take responsibility for your own actions. Being somebody who's high in achievement, you will. So that's the first step. I mean, sounds very simple, unconditional positive regard, but not just achievement, but also self-actualizing and humanistic and, for that matter, affiliative. But more importantly, a lack of security-seeking thinking is fundamental. So then what isolates our achievement from the others? I think the first one would be that the parents encourage the child to have a sense of independence from a very early age. So they're given ample opportunity to do new and different things even before they turn five or six. So at a very young age, they are given a sense of independence. So they're not helicoptered all the time. They're not closely supervised. If the kid is on a jungle gym jumping from one bar to the next, resist the temptation, say, be careful, because if you fall, you'll break your arm. If they break their arm, they break their arm, right? And and yes, it's very risky because they might break their neck and be something. But simply telling them to be careful and don't, et cetera, et cetera, is not giving them a sense of independence. Mm. So it, it's huge risk-taking from a parent point of view, I have to say, mm. to do that. But that is, in, in the literature, probably the most fundamental element you'll see is that parents are encouraged to help make their children feel independent from a very young age. So they can make decisions, they can decide to wear different shoes on each foot or different colored socks or put two dresses on or whatever, and it doesn't really matter. Let them do that. Let them make those decisions. Because if you start to react to that kind of stuff, what you're saying to the child is, I'm more concerned with what you look like than how you think. And so Mm. now it's becoming to be conditional by definition to go back to that intro stuff. And when children lose a sense of independence, they develop a sense of dependence. And so we're immediately talking about the opposite of achievement, which is why Clay positioned the dependent style at five o'clock to show it's the exact opposite of achievement thinking, achievement behavior. So that would be the first one. Give them lots of opportunity to try new and different things. That's why I love these, you know, when I watch my own children with their kids and friends with their grandchildren, etc., I mean, they're taken to swimming clubs at six uh, six months old kind of thing and, and mm. really just floating around in the water with mum or dad or granddad or whatever, doesn't matter. But they're given the sense of doing things, which gives them that sense of independence, get them involved at a very young age in sports of some sort, creative activities, not just sports, but art and cultural stuff, etc. So I'll come back to the sports stuff because that's often confused. So, I mean, dare I say it, there are some strong similarities between bringing up children and managing people. Uh So for those that are sort of interested in the bringing up children, this stuff is equally relevant for how you manage your staff. So you should give your staff plenty of independence. You should give them the opportunity to show what they're made of, to use that expression, and give them a little bit of rope, give them some autonomy, give them some independence, let them try their own way of doing it, because you might not necessarily agree with what they think, but every now and again, don't disagree with them, let them run with it, and they'll learn from that. Mm. So sitting alongside that is, again, this is why I sort of my mind went into managing people stuff, is around praise versus punishment. So the focus is very much upon lots of praise for things done well and minimal punishment for things not done well. So if the child, the, replace punishment by learning, 
And so whenever the kid does well, you know, you give them a paintbrush at three years of age and they paint three green stripes on a piece of paper, effusively congratulate them on what a wonderful artist they are. It doesn't matter that you have no idea what the hell it looks like and they think it looks like mummy and daddy or whatever. It's completely irrelevant. Praise them, praise them, praise them. On the other hand, when they do something silly, you've got to be very careful not to punish them, but to sit down and talk with them about why they did that, what happened as a consequence of doing that, and how they might do it different next time around. And that's where it takes, I mean, that's why I said somewhat jokingly about it assumes that you're not tired and overstressed and overworked and overmortgaged and all the rest of it, because you've got, it takes a huge amount of energy to take a big deep breath pop a three-year-old on your knee and have a quick chat to them about what they did and why they did, rather than just giving them a smack bottom and telling them not to be so damn stupid. Smack bottom is probably against, is it against the law in Australia? It's against the law in New Zealand I, nowadays. I don't know, but... Haven't tried it yet. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> they haven't Good. called me up. <laughs> so praise success, learn from failure. You know, interesting on that learning from failure, so it's having the conversation. So what if they did... You know, something naughty in the smack bottom scenario. Yeah. The, the colored pens are out and on the wall or whatever. You know, like, I mean, it's pretty tempting to punish <laughs> in that moment, Sean. First thing is to make sure your house is as childproof as it can be. So, <laughs> so have achievement thinking yourself. Correct. <laughs> yep. So make, make sure you've got painted internal walls that you can simply wipe crayons and that stuff off. Make sure you buy your kids water-based paints and that kind of thing. So again, it's thinking as an adult. But it's, it's perfectly natural for a child to do that. It's not naughty in the child's mind to be doing that. It's naughty in the adult's mind. Mm. And so therefore it's around again, why did you do that? What did you think you achieved from doing that? How could you have done it differently? And accept that they may try to challenge your boundaries now that they know that really pissed you off by doing it again just to see how you react because that's how human beings tend to, to grow and develop by learning. So the child is constantly learning what his or her boundaries are. Mm. That's why two-year-olds are such a, you know, a, a, dare I say, an interesting age, if not sometimes a monumental pain in the backside. Because at two, they're going through some serious mental or brain physical development. And part of that is testing limits. They want to know what mum and dad's limits are. So they will test you and they will respond to how you behave. So again, you have to take a big deep breath, not get angry, not punish, have a conversation with them and accept that it might well happen again. You achieve very little by yelling and screaming and punishing a child. The one thing you do achieve could be a reduction in trust. One of the beautiful things about a parent-child relationship is that there is automatic trust between the child and the adult. So no matter how stupid you might be as an individual, your three-year-old adores the ground you walk on. You may not know it, but they do. They, your dad, you know, you are it. You are the man kind of thing. Mm. And so the minute you start to behave in ways that is inconsistent with that view, you, i.e. yell and scream at them and tell them they're a naughty girl or whatever, or you try to be slightly educated and not refer to them as a naughty girl, but refer to their behavior as being unacceptable or something like that, mm. some of that trust just diminishes a little bit because I don't quite know how dad's going to respond to things in the future, or mum for that matter, or granddad and aunt and all the rest of it. Mm. So it's, mm. it's, a, it's a wider family involvement, not just the kids. Mm. So praise for success and learning from failure or mistakes. Hey, just on that one, Sean, because people would push back and say, we're raising soft kids. 
and this kind of stuff, you know, oh, this new age airy fairy stuff, you know, no yep. one gets punished. What would be your response to that? Spear the rod, spear the child is the expression that we grew up with in a very strongly sort of Protestant ethic kind of society. Absolute rubbish, in my view. You cannot spoil a child hmm. in the way in which I'm talking. You spoil a child by withdrawing love and replacing love with perhaps money or toys Material or stuff. trips yeah. overseas and all that kind of That's right. when you get a spoiled child. Right. Who will yell and scream because their birthday present this year was only worth $20 rather than $50 or something like that. But by showing unconditional positive regard, giving lots of positive praise for effort, not focusing on punishing poor performance or whatever it might be, there's no way on God's earth that's going to spoil a child. But people will think it will because we still mm. have this hangover, particularly from my generation, hopefully less so from yours, mm. of what was referred to as the Protestant ethic and this very strong, strict, you know, children should be seen and not heard kind of thing. And, and nowadays you have sleep consultants because parents are you know, very concerned about their children's sleeping habits overnight, whereas we were taught to put them in the cot as far away from your bedroom as you can possibly get in the house and just let them cry themselves asleep. Mm. And uh, I just wonder how many of them grow up with abandonment issues as, as adults as part of Well, maybe, maybe a few. So you can't overlove, you can't mollycoddle. Those are all nonsense statements, a child. From a psychological point of view, you can create all sorts of insecurities in children. It's a different story. Do, do you know what I, I was just thinking as you're saying that? This is where the first point comes in about, or the second point about encouraging independence. I guess you could spoil them where. I'm going to do everything for you. Oh. So I'm not going to give you independence, you know? So, yeah, so absolutely. I'm going to spoil you as far as yep. I'm going to do everything for you and you yep. never learn for yourself kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like your 10 year old walking into your lounge on a Sunday evening at seven o'clock or something and going, Oh my God, I've forgotten that this assignment was due in tomorrow. So you immediately grab everything, go into the study with the kid, do all the work for them. Get it already. Tick the box. Yes, project handed in on Monday. Probably better to sit back and say, "Well, you're going to have a long night, or you've only got one hour or two hours before it's bedtime. So get as much as you can done, get done in it, and hand it in tomorrow morning." So that they, you know, again coming back to the previous podcast on achievement thinking, one of the fundamental elements of achievement thinking is cause and effect. So what better way to learn that the kid will not be in a healthy situation on a Monday morning when they've got no project or an incomplete project or a very small effort on a project. So next time around, that's not going to happen on a Sunday night or probably happen on a Friday night. So at least they've got the weekend to work on. So it's not punishing, but it's letting them face the consequences of that, Correct. which is Correct. You know, your assignment's not yeah. done on time and you're going to have to yeah. face that. And this is where a lot of people, writers, confuse achievement with competitive, et cetera, and that sort of stuff. So, for instance, one of the advice that I'd give to grow achievement thinking is to get kids involved in competitive activities as young as possible. Mm -hmm. Get them into soccer or whatever it might be, or tennis or any of those sorts of sports, where they can win and they can lose. And congratulate them on winning, but, and it's a big, what's well, and rather than the buts, congratulate them on winning and ask them how they think they won. And don't criticize them on losing and ask them what they need to do more of or better next time around in order to get closer to winning. Because there's always going to be a better player than you, the other side of the tennis needle, something like that. It's just a fact of life. 
And so, you know, even tennis number one players don't stay number one for the rest of their life. They'll get beaten by somebody down the track. It's just a reality. So these sort of school situations where I've seen, I've seen in Australia, for instance, where over a period of a couple of years for girls' netball matches on a Saturday morning, they stopped taking a score. Mm. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more ludicrous than that, quite honestly. And, and it's sad that the children don't suffer from losing. You don't suffer from losing. You learn from losing. And if the kid's only there on for the sheer fun of playing netball on a Saturday morning, they probably don't care whether they win or lose anyway. And if they are strong competitors and high in achievement or perhaps even high in competitive, and they get upset about losing, well, then what can they learn about themselves from that that they can take forward in the next situation? So I've seen that in, in both New Zealand and Australia over the years. And as I say, it's just it's complete nonsense and, in fact, works against developing achievement in children. Yeah, it's such a fascinating topic, Sean, because I think that is that people's reaction to, well, we don't want to encourage the competitive, high competitive stuff. So instead of going to blue, they actually swing all the way to green. You know, exactly. now we're going to take away, we're not going to talk about scores, we're not going to do all yeah. this stuff. But that doesn't really work either. Like, because no, A, the kids still know the score. Tell you what, it's, it's, um, it's <laughs> using a mallet to crack a nut, really. You, you better to get into nut level precision around this. And the, the key is that when your child wins, is you don't praise winning, you praise playing well or doing well or whatever. So if they come back from school having won the arts competition or the maths competition or the spelling bee, it's not so much the winning that's important, how well you perform that's important. So talk about what you did that helped you win. What can you do even more next time around, kind of thing, without getting perfectionistic about it. Right, but you really put in a lot of effort in your training and yeah. – yeah, development. That's, that, that's why a savvy sports coach, an adult level sports coach, will say actually we learn more from losing than we do from winning because they often forget to talk about how they win, but they sure as hell talk about how they lost. Mm. You know, spe- speaking of that, you just reminded me of an interview I saw with Ash Barty's father oh, on, yeah. on raising a champion. It was just on YouTube. I think I just stumbled across it somehow. Really interesting. It was a tennis podcast, so they're kind of talking tennis stuff. But he talked early on that. He fell into the pitfall where he said to Ash before some tournament, she's a young girl at this point, Yeah, you know, if you win, I'll buy you a you know, teddy bear or whatever it was. I'll give you a present if you win this tournament. And then she's in the final and she loses, but she plays her heart out, you know, and just loses to a better player on the day. And yep. he realized, shit, <laughs> you know, he's totally messed up. Yeah. And yeah. he said in the end, he said, Dull, you know, you played your heart out, I'm going to get you two teddy bears or something, and like daddy was wrong kind of thing. Absolutely. My poor old son, who's now about turned 40, had to suffer through his father coaching his cricket team from the age he was five until he was 17, and the circumstances would have it, unfortunately. But, um, I mean, we I used to have, as the coach of the team and the coach of the regional rep team above that level, Parents would sort of give their kids $10 a run or $10 a wicket or something like that. And I'd just go to them and say, I'd rather you didn't do that. Uh, it's not going to help them one little bit. And if it does help them, it helps them in completely the wrong way. I'd rather they focused on their contribution to the team and not every kid gets to bowl and all that kind of stuff. And they need to learn from that. So again, one of the, I mean, I can encompass this with a broad statement. One of the elements of achievement thinking is a, a belief in cause and effect. So what we want to develop in children is an association of achievement with effort. So when you come home and say, I aced the maths exam and got an A+, 
I don't talk about how fantastic it is you got an A plus. I talk about well, that's because you put an incredible effort into that, and we could see you, you know, studying in your bedroom every night this week for that exam kind of thing. So always link achievement, winning, whatever it might be, with the effort that's being put into it, rather than the fact of winning. I mean, winning is a mere artifact. It's an outcome. It's, mm. it's an outcome, and it, and it's sometimes a false outcome because. You can win a tennis tournament by being the strongest player on the day, but you can also lose the final because you happen to have somebody that you hadn't played before who's better than you. And so now you've got another standard to track yourself against. So, yes, association of achievement with effort is important. So you got an A-plus because you put so much effort into it. Your team won the soccer match because the three strikers were always running as hard as they could towards the nets or whatever it might be. Or, you know, you took all those wickets because you were really careful about where you placed Place the fields. The mm. Exactly, mm. all that kind of well, stuff. I've heard as well, like with the school one, is not saying, wow, you're so smart, but saying you worked really hard on that. Or exactly. saying Because smart is an inherent yep. fixed mindset yep. kind of thing. Yep. I am or I am not smart. Yes, that, and those expressions can destroy people. I mean, by way of a non-achievement thinking example is one of the, the only accreditation program I'm involved in nowadays is the organisational development one around the OCI OEI. And we do heavily use statistics and that standard deviations and T tests uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And so because people are going to be accredited practitioners are going to be asked about that stuff, I sort of feel obliged to teach them for one of a word a little bit around how that stuff works and, and make it make it simple, because it is simple. But like nine out of ten people, and I'm only exaggerating slightly say to me, oh, but I'm mathematically challenged, you know. And I say, there's no such thing. There is no such thing as a clinical condition called mathematically challenged. (laughs) does not exist in the Diagnostic and Statistical (laughs) Manual. Never has, never will. Some arsehole of a teacher somewhere along the line told you you were bloody hopeless at maths. So from there on, you were hopeless at maths. And so let me take you right back to the beginning. Yeah, well, you know, often comes up, right? So it's an inherent belief. Yeah. Actually, I can learn that stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, maths is easy once you understand it. It's because it's not been well explained. I mean, I always thought the best teacher I ever had when I was at secondary school, I went to a boarding school. It was a Catholic boarding school, boys' school, obviously, was maths teacher in the first year because he had never taught maths before. So he's sitting up the night before in oh his gosh. room reading tomorrow's lesson. So he was a fantastic teacher because he explained right. it to you. Right, right. Whereas some of the other kids got brother who actually worked with Rutherford and splitting the atom. He was pretty old. And he was a brilliant physicist, but had to teach maths to kids at school. And they didn't understand a word he was talking about. <laughs> so, so I always yeah. figured I drew, drew the best draw in terms of a maths teacher. And I grew up with not a love of maths, but an ability to take it into statistics and economics and all that sort of stuff and enjoy playing with it. Mm. So to recap on that point, always associate effort with accomplishment. Mm. So the sense of accomplishment is strong, but I accomplished this because of that, that, and the other thing. The other thing about the scores and taking scores away that makes it really quite silly is that people who are high in achievement enjoy a challenge. It's one of the items in the inventory, funnily enough. And so therefore we want to make challenges enjoyable. So one of the things we want to do with our kids is to sort of bring them up with a desire to be challenged without, again, getting perfectionistic about it because it's a fine line between those two. So looking for the the better player, the better tennis player, putting them in front of a really good batsman if they think they're a fantastic bowler and just let them be challenged and 
see the extent to which they can rise to that challenge will realise that there is limits to their capability and they have to figure out ways of getting around that. So that's a bit of an aside one. Well, that that's an interesting one though, Sean, because again, there's that protecting kids from failure, protecting kids from challenge kind of stuff. Yeah. But as long as, I, sometimes I think those are the kids you see who once they're outside the nest kind of fall apart oh, because they're not used to doing it, you know, yeah. dealing with that stuff. As soon as you start to use words like protect, you are being primarily concerned with their security. And the more you focus on building somebody's security, the in, you increase the sense of insecurity. Mm. So mm. it's a chain reaction. Mm. So, I mean, again, I mean, I mean this, it can be really scary when I think back to some of the things that my own children did over the years, and I had to really bite my tongue because what they they did, well, what any teenagers do, they're dangerous kind of things. They are life-challenging things. There's no point in yelling and screaming at them. That's not going to make them stop doing that kind of behavior. They're going to do it anyway because they're testing their own limits. So it takes a huge amount of courage, and I, I say this most sincerely, takes a huge amount of courage for a, an adult to attempt to erase an achievement-thinking child because you've got to let them loose. You've got to let them at three show you how they can jump from one bar to the other, and you think, oh, my God, what happens if they miss the bar, et cetera. And if they do and they break a leg, well, then they've broken a leg, and I'll learn from that, but get them back on the bars as quickly as you can kind of thing. And I think that's it, you know, it's not saying they're going to go skydiving without a parachute or something. Correct. Right? Clearly, Correct. if it's way over the top risky, we're not we're stopping that. Correct. Oh, it reminds me of one a, of my. There's a lot sorry. of stuff before that limit. Yeah, it reminds me of one of my favourite cartoons. It's sort of like a Larson Far Side type of thing. There's hmm. these three guys standing at an aeroplane waiting to parachute out, and one of them's got no parachute, and said Fred was too embarrassed to admit to his friends that he'd forgotten to bring his parachute. <laughs> Love it. Uh, I used to use that when I did the approval circumplex little workshops that we do or we used to do. You know, interesting with the let them loose thing, Sean, because I think nowadays even more that is a challenge or it doesn't happen because, you know, even since my day, what's changed? Cell phones and stuff. Now kids of all ages pretty early get cell phones and so they're never out of touch. Whereas I remember in my day and, and I'm sure in your day, you know, You'd take off on your bike with your friends and I'll be home yep. at dinner time kind of thing. And yep. who knows where the hell we're in the abandoned quarry or something. I mean, it was kind of, and it was kind of dangerous, frankly, but yep. there was also a learning you get from that about judging risk for yourself for so on and so on. Uh, whereas nowadays it's like, text me constantly where you are. You know, I, I can track your cell phone so I know exactly where you are, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, I'd resist the temptation to track cell phones and things like that because it will produce the behavior you don't want to produce. And I mean, I have to say the internet has the ability to be the most empowering thing in our life and also the most destructive things in our life. Mm. And so... Part of me is glad I'm no longer responsible for bringing up children because <laughs> I didn't have to go through that. But, I mean, in the old days, if you were bullied by somebody at school, they might tell their five mates about what a sucker you are or whatever. But now you can tell five million people on the internet or you can be filmed and put on YouTube and all the rest of it. And, and- yeah, no, I totally agree. And here's a segue for you because you just brought that up and reminded me. Someone asked me the other day, like, would you encourage your kid to stand up to the bully? Because nowadays, just thinking of like the taking the scores off the sport kind of stuff, you know, it's like, well, you should never fight, even if it means defending yourself. It should all, yep. you know, go to the teacher, 
go to a parent kind of stuff at all times. What's your take on that as far as raising kids goes? Well, I'll tell you a Clay Lafferty story because he used to tell it often and always thought it was a good story. Whether it is or not, I'm not sure. It's going to depend on your own moral <laughs> compass. But before Clay became a consultant and worked in a partnership with a couple of other people and then formed what was originally called Experiential Learning Systems, which morphed into human synergistics, he was the head school psychologist for the Wayne County in Michigan which is a very large area of Michigan. And he had like 120 school psychologists under his control, for want of a word. So he was sort of top ed psych person in that school system. And he used to tell the story about this uh, you know, fat 12-year-old boy who was really bullied because of his weight issues and kids had beat him up and he was constantly coming to see the school psychologist and suicidal thoughts and all the rest of it. And, he ended up talking to Clay, and Clay you know, did his usual psych thing and listened to the kids' issues, etc. and then said, why don't you learn to box? In fact, I'll pay for boxing lessons for you over the next three months. And he did, and he always laughed and said, next time one of the bullies hit him, he beat the crap out of them. So, again, you may or may not agree with that approach, but he always thought it was a good story. And he said, did the kid's self-image change at that point in time? Sure as hell, yes, it did. So you do stand up to the bully, I would say, in principle. Well, and partly because someone asked me this question, if it's always go to the adults, go to the teacher, go to the parents, whatever, what do we learn? The coping mechanism is outside yeah. myself, right? Yeah, it's an exactly. appeal to authority, right? Yeah. I need to be saved versus I can stand up for myself kind of yeah. stuff. And it may not be standing up for yourself by hitting the other kid. It might be standing up for yourself by walking away and having a thought process. I mean, there's the old famous saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but thoughts will never hurt me. Mm. And so you can go away saying, you know, that kid's a bully. He's just picking on me for some reason or other because I am chubby, because I wear glasses for no reason whatsoever. For whatever, yeah, 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 exactly. And it takes a huge amount of mental resilience for a 10-year-old to say, that's not because of me, it's because of him. But mm. if we can tell our children that actually the bully is the one with the problem, not you. And so walk away, just leave them alone and build resilience within yourself in terms of your own mental strength. Easier said than done, of course. Yes. I personally wouldn't take them to boxing lessons, but I always thought that was a funny story that Clay used well, to like I, tell. I, I am planning somewhere down the line, my son's too early yet, to yeah. do jujitsu lessons, which is actually, a, without going too far down the rabbit hole, a good one because it's it's not – so violent because it's not a striking form. Yeah, yeah look, I, I, would, I would agree with that. I think it's in today's society, even yesterday's society for that matter, I always thought it was important for kids. Maybe this is a sexist approach, but I, I do mean it sincerely, particularly girls, to be able to protect themselves physically as much as possible. So I'd always encourage parents to send their kids off to karate classes or whatever it might be. Not that they hopefully would ever have to use it, but if they're in a situation where they needed to defend themselves, then they can. I think that's the thing, Sean, as well. Like, I would say boys in that category too, because guess Probably, what? The, yeah. the ones who are confident in what they're able to do don't yeah. need to fight. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's the ones who feel like they need to prove something, let's think of circumflex terms, yeah. who end yeah. up getting into the fights, right? Because I need to, yeah. oh my God, I can't back away. I've got to like be seen yeah. by everyone kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd encourage the jujitsu stuff. I think that's a good idea. If for nothing else, it teaches them physical discipline. Yeah, yeah good. Probably mental discipline as well for that matter. Exactly. The only problem, Sean, I feel like I've got to get a chapter or two ahead in the textbook. So I've got to sign myself up first so I can, so I can be ahead. 
Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what else? So, let them loose. We talked about the challenge. What else should we be thinking about, Sean? So, hopefully, we talked about love, teaching them cause and effect. So, when they accomplish something, to focus on how they accomplished it, not just the fact that they accomplished it. Goal setting, I haven't talked about that mm. yet. So, teach them the process of goal setting, not again in any perfectionistic way. We've got to be really careful. It's far too easy to get perfectionistic around goal setting. But I mean, if your kid's interested in whatever it might be, whether it's art or jujitsu, you know, what sort of goals would you like to set for yourself? Where would you like to be in one year's time or five years' time or whatever, or what you long to? And accept that for a child, it might be a fantastic goal, like a fantasy-based goal. I'm going to grow up to be an astronaut. That's fine. You know, any kid can grow up to be an astronaut, so encourage that. They probably won't, but that doesn't matter. They'll have changed their mind about what they want to be in a few years' time, if not a few weeks' time anyway. So, again, parents have got to be careful that they don't put their kids down. So when some kids, you know, says, I'm going to grow up to be an astronaut, don't fall into the trap, which I've seen in many parents, of saying, you know, you won't get to do that or that won't happen or whatever. Of course it can happen. You know, and for me, aiming at a national, and even if you don't hit that, guess what? Now I've studied really yep. hard in math class and I'm really yep. good at, now I'm an engineer or something. Awesome. So <laughs> you setting, know, like that, that's great. Setting goals is important. The other is problem solving. Mm. So teaching kids around problem solving processes can be extraordinary. I I don't often talk about my own family because I don't want to sort of say, hey, I did it right, etc. because I probably didn't. But just one example of my now nearly 40-year-old son, when he was about 10, he was one of these kids that he had a mate and these two lived in each other's pockets. You know, mm. They were just, mm. just super, super duper close kids from the time they were about four. Mm. And this other kid's parents, that when they were getting into what we would call intermediate age here, which is around 12, 13, they decided that they would send this kid off to a private school. And my son was absolutely devastated. So this actually prior to intermediate, it would have been more about nine or 10, mm. prep school kind of thing. And so he was absolutely devastated about this. And, you know, like, what can I do? And could I go to that school too? And, you know, our response at that stage was, if you want to, you can although it was huge fees, so it wasn't a desirable thing to do from our point of view, but let's support him and say. And so he just thought about this for you know a couple of weeks and was absolutely devastated and very unhappy, etc. And so I decided to use a problem-solving process that we actually teach as part of the simulation stuff around desert. It's in one of the leader's guides for desert in South Africa, I think. And that is the likelihood of the consequences of something happening and the likelihood of it happens. Mm. So I sat him down on a Saturday morning with a piece of paper and said, right, let's list all the things that could go badly if you stay where you are. You know, I'll lose him as a friend, etc. That's all the things that could go wrong if you went to this other school with him. You might have other friends there anyway, etc. Might not get a bad teacher, etc., etc., etc. So we got a reasonable list for each of those. And I said, right, now on a scale of naught to five, what's the consequence of that would have happened? Naught says doesn't matter. Five says it's terrible. So we just worked through each of those, and he put a ranking on each of them for both lists. And we said, okay, so now what's the likelihood of it happening? Zero to five. Zero won't happen. Five, it's guaranteed to happen, did that. And the process is you multiply likelihood by consequence or consequence by likelihood. So if you've got a five consequence and a five likelihood, it's 25 points. If you've got a five consequence but a one likelihood, it's five points. Then you add up the points for each of the two options. 
And uh, it was pretty clear that the least risk was staying where he was because he knew he was going to get a good teacher next year, etc. He knew he could still catch up with this kid after school. He knew that eventually they'll probably end up going to different secondary schools anyway, which is only two or three years away, etc., etc. And uh, so he made the decision to stay where he was, which proved to be you know, a good rational outcome for him at that point in time. So that's just one example. Forget the fact that it's me and my kid but it's obviously one that I know about, of you can get children to use classic problem-solving tools to help them make decisions, and it helps them see the rationality of the process. And that's rationality and pragmatism, of course, underpins achievement thinking, particularly pragmatism. That's interesting. So it's like role-modeling it together with them, stepping through that process, and and it's also encouraging that independence because, hey, it's your call, you know? So so what, what do you reckon? You know, interesting for that as well. It just makes me think as a parent, you know, there's the you can't go because I say so kind of argument, you know, which is the I'm the authority kind of don't question it response, right? Or the actually working them through why that decision was made, you know, whatever it is. So why can you not go to this party or, you know, whatever it is, you know, here's why. And actually as a parent admitting to yourself, if I don't have a good reason why... Not Correct. can I say no? Correct. The minute you say because I say so, you're actually admitting to you, a lack of you critical thinking. You don't have a reason, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your kid knows that they're not stupid. <laughs> yeah, and that's why they keep asking, and you're like, yep. because yep. I say so, because you got no reason to actually yep. give. Yeah, yeah. So achievement is not exactly the opposite of power, but it's very unlike power. Mm. So achievement is about empowering others. Power is about controlling others. I'm wondering that on well, Sean, and may, maybe it's achievement, maybe it's a different constructive style, but just thinking, you know, kids are full of questions, why, 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 kind yep. of stuff. Yeah. And as a parent, you know, is it role modeling? I don't know. Let's find out. You know, how exactly. do we find out kind of stuff? Exactly right. So that's that's underpins, if nothing else, uh, self-actualizing style where mm-hmm. the parent says, actually, that's a really good question. I don't know. Let's find out the answer. And, of course, the answer to everything is on the internet. Mm. So you can find those answers pretty quickly nowadays. So it's about getting the child interested in information and knowledge for knowledge's sake. And so if you admit that you don't know something, so let's together find out what the answer is, you're role modeling for them an interest in getting answers to things. Mm. Are there any other ones, Sean? What do you reckon? Well, it's about off the top of my head for now, I think. We've gone for a while. I think, you know, just on that closing note, you know, people talk about, you know, needing to provide their kids with all the stuff and and so on. And, you know, I debrief in the LSI a lot of parents who say, put themselves last, right? Because I, I need to put my kids first and my family first and my job first and all this stuff, put ourselves last. Yeah. And I always think the greatest gift you can give your kid is a parent who's full of life, you know, and Absolutely. living in that constructive zone yourself. Yeah. And being self-actualized, experiencing things firsthand and all that stuff. That's the greatest gift you can give them, not the new pair of shoes and the whatever. Absolutely. Um, or, or even, you know, just putting all their needs first, driving them around to all the sports on Saturday, if it's killing you to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. used to be an old clinical trick that I was taught about a million years ago that if I were counseling then but coaching you in business terms, I'd say you've got three cups and you've got 24 eggs. One of those cups is labelled work. One of those cups is labelled family and relationships, and the other cup is labelled me, you. Allocate those 24 eggs into each of those. Actually, they were baskets, I'm sorry. 
So three baskets, work, family relationships, and you. Allocate the 24 eggs into each basket in terms of how much effort is put into each of those. Mm. And it's a play on the old too many eggs in one basket kind of thing. But of course, what you find, whether it's a basket cup or otherwise, doesn't matter, is there's bugger all eggs in the me cup. Mm. And so therefore, I would encourage anybody from a mental well-being health point of view is to do things that are just for them. Yes, it's a 24-7 job bringing up a child. You're always at their beck and call. Their demands are very demanding, et cetera, et cetera. You've got limited time, limited energy. But also find some time, even if it's just half an hour somewhere, to do something that is just for you, whether it's reading a book, getting on the internet and having a look at the news or whatever it might be. That's just for you. Because as you say, the best thing you can give to a healthy child is a healthy parent. It's a great note to end on. Thanks for your time today, Sean. I know Thank I was you. super interested in that topic, given it's pretty relevant to me, <laughs> and I'm sure it is to a bunch of listeners out there too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.